Welcome to this week's episode of Being Human. I'm here with Dasha Narvaez. She is the Professor of Psychology Emerita at the University of Notre Dame. She's also the founder of EvolveNest.org and the president of Kindred World. Dasha, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be here. And I got it right this time. Our listeners don't know that this is take two after I mispronounced your first name so much. Yes, thank you. Uh, thank you. And, and so glad you're here. And you have a treat for us, right? So I understand that fairly recently you produced uh, a movie. That's right. Shall I share my screen? Yeah, please do. Okay. We've been told a story that we are selfish, aggressive, rugged individuals. But if that were true, we should have no problem with physical distancing and self-isolation. The pandemic showed us that this story is not who we are. That's because we evolved in cooperative bands of kin and non-kin, where we were nurtured and welcomed by all members of the community. We lived together, we gathered food together, we sang together, and we danced together. We knew it would have been impossible to survive on our own. But together, we thrived. Today, we are living in a culture that goes against everything it means to be human. Our culture emphasizes toughness over tenderness, isolation instead of togetherness, even for babies. As a result, we are depressed, anxious, chronically ill, and at the bottom of every international indicator for health. We are stuck in a cycle of competitive detachment where we feel disconnected from others and even ourselves, while at the same time feeling we have to compete for anything worthwhile. There's a way not only to break this cycle, but to create a new one, one that reclaims our humanity and helps us heal ourselves and our culture. We can create a cycle of connected, cooperative companionship For most of our existence, we have created culture from the bottom up, from the way we raise children, and from the top down, from the stories we told one another. Children were nested in loving, supportive village care, growing deep connections to and respect for the natural world. In modern culture, children are raised with disconnection with little concern for their basic needs, and with an almost random set of relational experiences. They still hear stories conveyed by various media, but they are full of put-downs, egoism, and violence. Babies require an external womb experience to grow and connect with others. They need calming, affectionate care, immediate responses to keep them optimally aroused while rapidly growing brain connections. Without this early care, 
without meeting our millions-year-old biological needs for our evolved nest, babies learn a pattern of disconnection from the self, from others, and from the world, manifesting in self-protective mindsets and irritation with people from different backgrounds or with different ideas. We withdraw from social life because it's just too painful, triggering the traumas we experienced early on in life. We constantly seek to fill a void we were never biologically intended to experience. The good news is that it's possible to break this cycle of competitive detachment and restore the cycles of connected, cooperative companionship. We can learn what our basic needs are and find ways to help everyone get them met. We can take steps that open our minds and hearts and build empathy towards others who are different from us. We can become aware and careful about where we put our greatest asset, our attention. We can build attachment to the natural world by immersing ourselves in its beauty and developing our connection with its aliveness. Cultures can and do change. It begins with each one of us realizing our inherent nature to be empathic, flexible, and sovereign beings followed by taking steps to heal and restore our core nature. Many of us assume that the culture we live in mirrors innate human nature, but today's dominant cultures of competitive, destructive detachment are rare and recent. Nearly every other culture that has ever existed during our species' history over millions of years has been one of connected, cooperative companionship. To heal ourselves and our world, we simply must return to this way of nurturing children and communities. For more information, go to breakingthecyclefilm.org. brought a lump to my throat yeah yeah that's uh yeah powerful yeah powerful and i made um well there's, there's several moments in that stood out mm-hmm. i wonder i wonder if we should start with the, the historical and then you know br- bring us into you know what we can do now um so explain to me you know this idea that um, it's only recently we, that we've developed competitive cultures. Uh, I suppose I'm interested in that. And w- why did that happen? And uh, why is it so important to understand that? That's a big question. It's uh, one that people puzzle about, scholars argue over. Uh, but there seems to have been something that occurred around 10,000 years ago where people started to settle into mono-agriculture systems, uh, not willingly, typically, 
but then the hierarchies developed because uh, people started to uh, store resources. And before that, you ate the food that you collected immediately, pretty much. Um, there wasn't a lot of uh, uh, inequality in how much people had intentionally. So our small band hunter-gatherer uh, history is that that's nomadic foragers. They're fiercely egalitarian. They pretty much everyone doesn't have possessions, maybe some slight thing, a machete or something. Um, but there's more of a gift orientation of sharing and sharing. And just like the natural world works, it's a, a gift economy that things just cycle through. And that was the norm. Uh, and then somehow there's a shift and people have different causal reasoning about it. People got afraid or, and so they started to um, cultivate plants, domesticate animals. Seems to be more accidental uh, and just, uh, yeah. Anyway, we go, I mean, I'm not an expert in the area. I just read all yeah. the archaeology and the anthropologists about this. So something happened and uh, hierarchies developed, inequality, and then the people in power um, try to keep control, right? So they they try to control those who they need to keep the system in place, just like we have today. So we have the one percenters who are uh, hoarding resources, essentially, and controlling the rest of us. We have to work to eat. That didn't used to be the case for most of our existence. Uh, And now we are forced into it. So we have homelessness and starvation and all this that you wouldn't have seen uh, uh, isolated in a particular group of people in a community. Everyone would starve together, right, if they starved Mm. the past. So something happened. And um, there's a new book out by David Graeber and David Wengro. uh, just came out about how the the dominant view is that something shifted 10,000 years ago or so, and now we're stuck in this one pattern. And their book suggests, no, in the past, even before 10,000 years ago, people were, people were shifting between hierarchical organizations during some seasons of the year. And then the egalitarian or, orientation or organization other times of the year. So even that, though, shows there's flexibility that we had in the past that today we think is impossible. And what happens with the hierarchical organization, the kind we have, at least especially in the states where people are suffering at every level, and maybe not the 1% of 1%, but everyone else is suffering because there's such social poverty. And we thought what it meant and what it means to have social wealth or even ecological wealth. And instead, we focused on economic wealth because that's what happened in the last 10,000 years, the shift to the focus on that accumulation, right? So what it's done, then it undermines normal species development because you're not providing the nest of care that the movie um, mentions that requires everyone to be calm and relaxed and present yeah. and uh, available to children and to one another in order to feel good and to promote the, the biochemistry and the neurobiology of, of gratitude and love and companionship and attunement. Instead, we've got a super stressed society in the States, particularly that sp- states are spreading everywhere all over the world. <laughs> 
uh, where everyone's, ah, you know, worried about the, the, where they're going to get the next uh, paycheck or, or uh, you know, buy the next house. I mean, whatever it is, accumulation and worrying about other possessions and not about relationships, about being, you know, enjoying one another. And they, they when you don't have the nest, you don't actually develop all those skills and all the neurobiology of affection and companionship that you would develop because we're so immature at birth. It, we are shaped by our experiences early on. And if you're just set in a crib with, uh, or a playpen with a screen, you're not developing all the stuff that makes, makes it easy to get along with other people. So you have all these disorganized, dysregulated, uncooperative adults you now that don't know what they're missing in, in a way and don't know how to connect to the natural world too and only know hierarchy dominance, submission, and that's because that's their neurobiology, because that's our primitive systems that dominate if you're stressed too much in early life. So anyway, I could go on and on. Yeah. (laughs) That, well, that gives me, yeah, that gives me a a lot of, you know, I guess a lot of, a lot of context for this. And then I suppose what I'm reflecting and speaking to you as a psychologist is the, the psych, psychological community if you like at large when i reflect on it now tends to deal with the symptoms of this society that we we live in and then the psychiatrists not the psychologists might medicate that or or prescribe but there's there doesn't seem to be a great deal of people talking in the way that you're talking about which is like well hang on why have we got this society like this in the first place is that you know that seems is that central to your work right that's right. So it's a matter of shifted baselines. Shifted baselines is a notion that came from oceanography, marine biology, where they realized that people assumed that whatever the oceans were like when they were children was the way they should be. And they and, and when that when you have that assumption, you miss the shifts over generations of uh, towards worse and worse health or wellness in the, even the oceans. And I think that's happened for us as human beings. We've shifted away from understanding what child raising should be like, what species normal, species typical, what uh, helps a child flourish. And then we we uh, have shifted our notions of what a child is like, temper tantrums. Oh, that's normal. No, it isn't. (laughs) It's not normal around the world Uh, or aggression or violence. And then adults who are kind of sickly and, you know, ailing and self-centered and, you know, disagreeable. That's not normal either, but we think it's normal now. And then you have the culture of this competitive detachment that the film talks about where adults are over-controlling or under-controlling or neglectful or intrusive with children. And they're very distracted by, you know, the things I mentioned, their jobs and money and all and so yeah. we think that's normal human being, right? And we think it's normal to have an aggressive, violent nature. No, 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 no. Because <laughs> our baselines have shifted away from understanding how children develop, how you shape human nature. And it's really important in those first years of life because of all the neurobiological things that are being established in that child for the lifetime. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and I completely relate to it as a parent, as stressed, and as somebody who's literally this morning was dealing with a child with attention tantrum this morning. And, and, and most of that is me stressed, right? I wasn't going to get him to school on time, and I could see the clock ticking, and we were having a fight over which gloves he wanted to wear. It's a cold day here. 
And you know, it's so it's so interesting to me because you you are describing like you know a part of my life just today, and yeah, it, and I'm I guess the more I open myself up to you know the, the self development work and all the rest of it, you know, the more I become acutely aware that this is not normal, and uh, you know, ask myself the question, you know, how how can we get to a place where um, we are living life in the way that you described, right? And and I think many of us are doing that now. Um, but what I love about what you're bringing to this conversation is this historical perspective and that this wisdom has existed, you know, long before us. Um, and, uh, there's a huge resource out there. Yeah. In terms of child raising, uh, I'm just writing a chapter and, uh, about moral development and contrasting indigenous perspectives with the westernized version we all know. Uh, where in the West you think, oh, you have to teach children to be good. You have to force them and punish them into being a good person because we have this kind of latent original sin idea, right, <laughs> uh, that we're kind of bad otherwise. <clears throat> the indigenous perspective is don't interfere with the development of that child. No coercion because you interfere with their spiritual development and throw them off track. You'll get them distracted you know, and, and we know this, oriented to not to avoiding punishment. That's what we think is normal for children, uh, moral development. Oh, they're trying to avoid punishment. Uh, so that's why they obey at first, if you ask them. Well, that's only in the westernized culture where you've already punished them and ignored them or, you know, somehow abused them emotionally or something. Uh, it doesn't happen in indigenous cultures, First Nation cultures around the world. You wouldn't even dream of coercing a child. The Jesuits in the 1600s, they kept records of visiting the Americas. And they, this one uh, example, uh, a child, uh, one of the French children was playing the drum and a Native American person came nearby, a guy, I guess. And the child hit the Native American and caused him to bleed. And uh, the Native Americans were all upset. Um, and they went to the French and said, you need to give us some gifts because that's how you uh, ameliorated a hurt. Right. You gave the other party gifts and then everyone forget everything. And the French said, well, that's not our way. We punish them. And so they stripped the child down and they're going to beat the child, you know, in the Native Americans said, what? No, no, don't do that here. I'll take, you know, I'll take off my clothes. You beat me. You don't hit children. <laughs> and so then the comment was uh, of the recorder, the journalist, oh, we're going to have trouble uh, teaching these children <laughs> you know, to be good. <laughs> anyway, wow. so it's really yeah. hugely different uh, to assume that you have to force children into obeying somebody else. This is the Kant, Immanuel Kant. Oh, he was just expressing what was normally perceived in European culture. You have to force them into obeying the adults through punishment so that later they develop their own ability to control themselves to obey laws that they choose to uh, obey, I guess. And Native Americans go, What? You break their spirit and then you, you fill it up with something else, right? That's crazy because the assumption in, in First Nation communities is that virtue is normal. Virtue of, uh, of every person develops normally if you provide the right support system and the right mentoring and the right, you know, responsiveness and freedom and liberty. Incidentally, the 
the notions of liberty and freedom and equality come from Native Americans in the United States. They were the founding fathers were highly influenced by Native American communities because in Europe there there was not equality or freedom. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think I'd, I'd read that somewhere that Benjamin Franklin was influenced by the Native Americans and that went into the Declaration of Independence. Yeah. yeah. But even that term, the spiritual development of the child, I mean, even that, I guess, is a bit of a shock to me right now, because I don't think I've read a single parenting book that talks about, they might talk about the emotional development of the child, but they won't talk about the spiritual development and interrupting the spiritual path of the child. I mean, that would just be considered, you know, woo-woo and, and wacky and out there, right? And and yet that's central to the to the way of thinking about child rearing, it sounds like. That's a huge difference then also between the indigenous worldview and the westernized or dominant worldview, right? That spirit, every spirit is infused everywhere and there's spiritual laws you need to follow. And if you don't, there'll be trouble. Whereas in the westernized enlightenment, materialistic view, right? You only pay attention to what you can see or measure. You don't pay attention to that. And you only um, understand or, you know, it's very left brain, right? Left brain, the dominant is oriented to what you can measure and categorize and rank and, and control. It's the right hemisphere that's oriented to this energy, the dynam- dynamism of living beings and, you know, the fluctuation and the things you can't measure as well. Um, and so the Native American mind, because you're raised with this evolved nest that fosters all your capacities and you're immersed in the natural world and you you have the capacity to be aware of all those things. Whereas in the West, we narrow down child raising to the minimum, you know, keep them alive, keep them warm, keep them, you know, under control. And then we think then they're going to be good people, but they've missed out on growing all these other capacities that we see in, in First Nation peoples. Right. Right. Yeah. I, I, it was one of the chapters of, um, of the book, The Indigenous Sustainable Wisdom, um, which has got a collection of you know, wonderful essays where there were two, two worldviews, which I think um, you're describing here, the cosmos, um, which is sacred uh, and moral and unified versus a worldview that the cosmos is fragmented, um, disenchanted and amoral. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. And we, we just we we've lost that, right? We've lost that in the Western psyche somehow, is that idea that spirit infuses everything. Yeah, and I, um, it's uh, often blamed on the enlightenment philosophy, but I think the philosophy comes from experience. And so I suspect that uh the black death and other other aspects, other experiences in the European context, um probably the crusades somehow they divorced themselves from spirit and went towards the manifest, the left brain stuff, because there was too much grief or pain. There's something that happened in there. (laughs) Because before that, the Europeans were also very spiritually oriented in this indigenous way. So it's just a recent few hundred years, perhaps, something happened. And and unfortunately, it's destroying the planet, that worldview, right? That fragment amoral you know it's all dead out there or inert you know and only humans really matter that's the worldview that we're uh, that's dominating now and so you cut down a forest yeah they're all dead anyway right they're all nothing 
Whereas we understand now forests are communities. They're mother trees that feed the younger trees through the root systems and they give back and forth to whoever's needy. I mean, it's very much a gift economy in the forest. And when you just plant trees, replacements, that's not a forest, that's a woodland, right? But you don't have the mother trees. You don't have all these networks of fungi and other, other creatures that are already very integrated and in, into uh, community companionship. Right. And I read in the, in the book um, the story of one uh, Native American who'd become a logger and then had to stop, uh, quit his job, sold his chainsaw because he couldn't stand the screams of the trees. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, uh, yeah, that, that touched a nerve. And I thought, you know, kind of imagining, just imagine having that connection where you, you could hear the screams of the trees. I mean, and, and, you know, and I can understand people listening to that being like, well, you know, what are you talking about? Trees screaming, but you know, at some level, that seems totally natural that somebody could form that kind of a connection with with nature. Yeah, um, there's more and more evidence scientifically now that we are dynamic energy systems, and our energy is affecting everything around us. So, if you're in a loving state of gratitude, you're going to have a positive effect on all the energy systems around you, the plants, the people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you're in this angry state and you know or whatever panic or fear probably fear and guilt you're gonna just it, it eats away at you and your energy it eats away at everyone around you yeah yeah and you can't and it stops it blocks you from connecting in that way um and and appreciating all of nature like i think there was another line that, that in the lakota tribe there's no uh, there's no word for pest they don't they don't have a word for pest and yeah, we, uh, we, well, I guess it's back to left brain. We categorize weeds and pests um, and the things in nature we don't like or that don't serve us. And, and, and we, yeah, we dichotomize nature in that way. We fragment it. Yeah, we don't uh, appreciate the whole. Right. And we put some people at the top. So, yeah, white, we create a hierarchy. White males right. primarily for a while, right? And uh, then it's, uh, women, nature, indigenous, they're not really quite human. That's unfortunately, we're trying to re, <laughs> rebalance that, right? That idea that's been dominating for a few hundred years. Right, right, right. Yeah, no, I, and, and then we're not sort of, yeah, because by creating that hierarchy and that separation, we're no longer part, part of the whole. But then I guess people fear. So why don't people? Yeah. So that's a good question to ponder then. So what is the reluctance then for people, given the stress, uh, given how unwell it's people, what's the reluctance to embrace this kind of thinking and orientation to the world? Why do we, why do we reject that? Well, we have, uh, I, I always talk about the top down, what we uh, are stories that we tell ourselves, the belief systems, but then the bottom up, which is the, our neurobiology, both things matter. So uh, the stories we tell about primitives and savages is they're not as advanced as we are, even though they seem to be much more advanced, really, because they don't go to war <laughs> and bomb and kill and exterminate and, you know, total war. That never happened before. It's just the recent, you know what millennia, I guess, um, maybe a couple millennia with Rome, I'm not sure. Uh, but uh, that's just weird. That's so extremely anti-life, right? And we think that's normal, again, baseline shifting. 
so we have these stories that, you know, we're superior and we're better. And, you know, there's no other way. This, you know, their collateral damage of the progress is all these people have to suffer. Yeah, but, you know, we're making progress and we're going somewhere. We don't know where exactly, maybe Mars, right, or something. I don't know. And then the bottom up stuff, though, is the neurobiological stuff from what I call undercare when you don't receive the nest. Yeah. You're not going to develop all the flexible attunement, socio, moral, uh, emotional, social, emotional, moral intelligence of getting along easily and flexibly. You know, that's what intelligence is about, flexibility. And you get very stiff minded because you've been stressed so much as a baby. You're left to cry, left alone, sleep trained. Uh, your system then of survival systems got enhanced. They are the things that grew uh great branches arborization and strengthened from the stress in early life and your stress response system got tuned up to be highly easily triggered and so when something happens that is unfamiliar uh, you go into that stress response and that shifts the blood flow away from your higher order thinking to your muscles you're not going to be open-hearted open-minded you're ready to fight or run right uh, and so we have a lot of people in the States anyway, who have been conditioned that way because we don't have parental leave. Babies are sent to daycare, inadequate daycare at six weeks old or, you know, it's crazy. Uh, and the minimization of baby needs is so widespread. It's like, oh, it's genetic. They're resilient. All these myths. Again, the top down myths telling you, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, justifying whatever the situation is and so we have a lot of people that are when then we have the uh let me just say there's <clears throat> launched lots of research with rats showing that if you don't have a nurturing mother in the first 10 days of life which is like six months for us you do not learn to turn off genes that control anxiety and so for the rest of your life even if you have a nurturing mother after 10 days <laughs> oops Sensitive period is past. For the rest of your life, you're going to be anxious with something new. And the only way to counter that is drugs. Right. So uh, we've got what millions of people like that in the States, right? They were undercared for. They're getting highly anxious with something changing. And so that looks conservative, but it's actually, you know, fear and rigidity and um, inflexibility. And then grasping to some some narrative that makes you feel okay white men are better you know and uh you know white men are the best and we have to protect them you know or they're after us ah so you grasp onto some narrative that makes you feel that pulls you out of that deep anxiety and insecurity you have as a you know as a human being because you were under care for and you felt left and in, in despair and alone and unloved my goodness it's a horror it's the abyss it's hell for a baby uh and so you've got to find something to keep you going otherwise just you know turn over and die why be here so you have that's your hope you hang on to whatever that is and people with money like to tell you what that should be <laughs> so the NRA, <laughs> national rifle association all the you know hang on to your gun that that's what's important in your life right so there's just a big hole that you wouldn't have in a First Nation, traditional First Nation community uh, where the child's spirit is guiding their life, not mm. the emptiness and the grasping. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. Um, 
but but that crosses the political divide, right? Presumably that that that's wherever wherever you sit politically, you're you're filling that hole just with a different icon, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the other the other thing that comes to mind, just in terms of the historical perspective, is th- these indigenous tribes would. I mean, they would go. There was a level of violence there, right? They would still fight with each other. There'd be some level of of violence. Is is the suggestion that it was just a a much less significant part of their existence? Yeah, no, that's um, the anthropologists and archaeologists fight over this all the time. So I'm not one of them. Uh, but what I my reading of it is that there was um, rivalry. Well. But they tried to keep it down, tamp tamp it down. So there are practices and rituals and things to keep egos from getting too big within the group. And these groups, these bands, if we're talking about forging bands, um, are pretty fluid. So one day to the next, it's a different group of people hanging out together, right? So it's not any rigid tribalism thing. That's different. Okay. Um, so I think people get mixed up on what a band is. That's a, you know, a flexible group that keeps shifting and moving um, like migratory animals, right? Where food supply is and very familiar with the same kind of route. Uh, and they are enjoying themselves essentially and eating what's there and not caring about storing things. Now, once you start to settle a little bit or you cultivate a plant or you domesticate an animal, now you're starting to, have some hierarchy or something. And even in those groups, there's still some uh, control of egoism. Uh, And for example, a hunter who gets a big animal uh, in the the Kung, the San San Bushman were asked, well, why do you tease the hunter so much? You know, you you say, uh, oh, it's so small. We should go back and uh, get a rabbit. It would be bigger, you know, and they do all these teasing and they tease, tease till the guy's laughing and head off, you know, because that brings down the ego when you're laughing with your buddies, right? Uh, And they have other practices to control uh, the, the hunter's ego. Like they shift whose arrow it is so you don't know whose arrow it is or you know it's that other person's arrow that got the animal so who's really the winner <laughs> Whatever. okay yeah so they have different practices like that and um and so uh the ego control is really important i'm forgetting now what where it was going i got off on that story well no we were uh, talking about the violence that does exist right and i'm just interested because violence, we, yes yeah and then uh so even when there is sort of ritual violence against another group, my understanding is that it's really very, uh, you know, get all dressed up and the men separate themselves from the rest of the group and they for a couple of days maybe. And that helps their testosterone increase because we know when you're around babies, your testosterone is, is more normal, I think. Yeah. But it increases when you're alone with men. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, so then you're ready to go off and do something, uh, you know, uh, brave, I suppose, and you go off and you meet the other group. Now, uh, the zoo, I think the British and the Zulus, right, were, the Zulus were ast- astonished that the British came in and actually killed them all, or killed, what? whereas the, the traditional thing was to have, you know, little uh, arrows flowing or whatever, and somebody gets hurt, oh, we're done. That was it. And it was like a big game. It's more of a play. Uh, okay. More of a game. And even some societies have song duels, you know, or they wrestle when people are getting, you know, 
uh, upset with each other. Okay, time for a wrestling match. So there's a lot less killing violence than we think is normal now. Now, if there's a person who starts to go mentally crazy and kill somebody and the little group is worried about them killing someone else, uh, they might kill him yeah. or at least expel him, yeah. depending on how dangerous he is. So there is there are ways to do things. And it's, it's never as clean as it sounds like when we're summarizing across <laughs> time and groups. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but I know that sometimes there's a there's a critique of people romanticizing these groups. But I think what you've given me there is a much more nuanced picture that it's it's more it's that th- these groups had conflicts. The way that they dealt with them, you know, dealt with them, is different. They seem to have, uh, as Graeber and Wengro in their new book, uh, The Dawn of Everything, as they point out, they seem to have known how risky it would be to have hierarchy, and so they keep it from informing essentially. Uh, not that they, you know, were just didn't progress on the natural, you know, social complexities, whatever evolution. Um, they're they're saying they're arguing. No, they know, they knew, and they know that that's dangerous. And they were much smarter than we we are about it because they kept it from happening. That's interesting, and yet all of our societal structures promote, you know, maintain. Uh, venerate hierarchy. <laughs> hierarchy. I mean, it's the complete opposite direction, right? Right. Well, that's the hierarchy. The people at the top want us to keep <laughs> supporting it, <clears throat> right? Right. Right. And so, is this? Are we talking about a history then that's pre- before even chieftains? Because you know, we we have the, the head of the village or the chief of a tribe is was. Because that's hierarchical. So are we talking about a time even before that, or is it just that there was there was something different about those hierarchies? Well, Graeber and Rungrow are saying you can't really have this progressive stream of complexity. It doesn't look like that's true in the record. That people moved uh, groups moved in and out of different kinds of formations, right? So if you're following that evolution, progressive, more complexity idea. Chiefdoms do come after the bands. So there's small bands. I think then there's chiefdoms, then tribes uh, and clans and such. But now they're throwing a wrench into that. The book just came out. So we'll see how the anthropologists deal with it. Right, right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. But what, but I suppose what certainly is true is that we have very elaborate hierarchies. for basically all aspects of our life now, don't we? I mean, that's something that's, and so, and that's ego reinforcing, right. which and increases isolation, anxiety. And it, yeah. And it requires coercion. And coercion, again, is one of the worst things you can do to a child. Right. Yeah. But that's not what adults think or are told or believe. Yeah. And then we see coercion. I mean, look, well, obviously what we're seeing now with the current pandemics is, you know, this extreme levels of coercion in some societies now around, yeah. um, you know, what people should be doing, you know, with vaccination and so on. So that's the older part of it. That's the survival systems of uh, the reptilian brain or the easy, we're a pre-human brain. So we evolved to be, uh, we did a shift away from ape 
dominance hierarchy orientation, when we grew our big social brain in uh, which co-evolved with uh, intensive cooperative child raising because children need a lot of calories to grow the big brain and the moms can't do that alone. So they need a coalition of other moms, but also hunters to bring in the meat. And then women uh, <clears throat> developed ways to control the alpha males. So they'd bring the meat in <laughs> uh, before they could have sex, for example. And then um, that grew our, our ability, our interest in egalitarianism. So this is a, um, orientation to the cooperation and what I call companionship. Um, and that's not what we are told is our heritage. We're told we're like chimpanzees, right? That's a com more common view. No, that's pre-human. But when yeah. you undercare for kids, you're creating a chimpanzee. You are you didn't develop the full human nature because you stress them so much, you push them back into the more primate orientations of dominance and submission. Wow. I mean that's a powerful statement. So there you're saying that our current child rearing practices are somehow regressing human development. In the States. Yeah. I'll, I'll just speak for the States because this is where I live and this is what I see in uh it's unbelievably difficult to be a parent and raise children here. Yeah, well, I mean, it's pretty tough here in the UK. I mean, it's... Uh... Well, you saw in the film that the UK was even lower on well-being than the United States. Yeah, so we, yeah, yeah. We both, both countries rank at the bottom on child well-being, you know. Right. Well, yeah, child well And then it plays out in adult well-being in terms of the levels of um, you yeah. know, the statistics of especially women on um, antidepressants and, you know, there's suicide levels amongst men. I mean, it plays out slightly differently, I think, right. across the genders, but it's, it's pretty awful both ways. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And yet we live, relatively speaking, in, in material opulence. Now, we often hear that, right? That, that the working class today live better materially than aristocrats from, you know, a couple of hundred years ago. Um, and materially, materially, that might be true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but the social poverty, the ecological poverty, it's just intellectual poverty, too. Intellectual poverty. Because we're so poverty. stuck in the left hemisphere orientation, so we undermine children's spiritual intuition development for their own life, of course. And we push them into the survival orientation. They're just always looking for how not to get hurt and how to dominate or not... Uh, be uh, a victim, I guess. Uh, and then they take them to you push them into school, and then it's all about intellectual learning, right? Semantic knowledge, you know, just learn this information. And you've got a big gap. You don't have the heart developed, the heart intuition, intelligences, which is the center of every other society through the history of humanity, is heart mindedness. That's the center of being human. We undermine it by the early undercare and then shoving them into a school that's very oriented to the knowing information, facts, right? And then they, they graduate. Well, who are they? Well, they're easily manipulated because they don't have any sense. They don't, their moral compass has been broken or not awakened. And they're easily manipulated into joining Wall Street and doing all sorts of damage to the world. I'm sorry, I have a bias there, obviously. <laughs> and so on. You can manipulate these kids. You know, they graduate 21, 22 years old. They're, their executive functions aren't finished yet. They, they still go until 30 or so before they 
if they have the right experiences, before they have good empathy and foresight and the ability to stop and start their actions, this is uh, executive functions. Uh, but if they haven't had a lot of play, which is really related to becoming human, and they've just been in this kind of hothouse pathway, I wouldn't trust them. <laughs> I, mean, I don't want them in charge of life and any decisions, right? Because they're kind of, you know, missing a part of their humanity. Right. I speak right. very strongly, as you see. <laughs> no, but yeah, but something, something, you know, is connecting with me there. This, this heart-based intelligence or this heart connection. Right. I mean, it's it's just not developed. We don't talk about it. We we, we don't talk about it. We we talk about you know intellectual development. You know, people being able to write and read and do their maths, and we don't talk about. There's no lesson I went to at school that the with the you know that had the class title you know how to get in touch with your intuition. <laughs> we don't talk about it, right? Um, That's right, because it's very inconvenient. Because when the when the individual has their own sense of spirit and intuition, they're not going to be controllable. Yeah. They will follow their heart. And the heart is about connection and about uniqueness. And it's not conducive to a hierarchy that wants to control everyone like a factory creature. Yeah. Yeah. And and then, of course, we say, oh, well, if you just follow your heart, you know what happens to people who follow their heart? They end up, you know, skin. <laughs> and, uh, you know, how, how are you going to own your own house how are you gonna yeah acquire these things that the materialistic um, right. you know hierarchy would expect of you yeah so the our species heritage is to grow up in a system of support follow your your uniqueness your unique path there's always food available always sharing going on and now we put people in a situation now where they don't grow that well, they can't grow it. If they were to grow it, there isn't the food available. The gift economy has been broken, right? You have you have to work Absolutely. to make your kids some food uh, and do it this way and that way. And, you know, so it's really a life of misery that we've presented our children with. Right. Sorry. I know, I know you laugh, but, but then, you know, there's a, there's a nervous laugh, but then you're like... And she's right, because, right, like a fifth of, what is it, a fifth of the women in the, in the States are like antidepressants or something crazy, isn't it? And that's, so there's the ones who just, you know, who've been to, a, you know, have got, been to the doctor and got prescribed with something, you know, what's, what's the percentage beyond that that are dealing with anxiety or depression? Yeah, three out of five uh, college students, undergraduates are, are taking some kind of drug, three out of five. Three out of five. Yeah, have have some anxiety or depression. And that's the cream of the crop, supposedly, right? The people who had the advantages. Is that true? Three out of five. My word. Yeah. Yeah. So I have solutions. Yeah, come on, let's do solutions. (laughs) You're taking us down the valley of despair. Let's let's climb with our fingernails. Out. Yeah, so <laughs> if we all have these primal wounds from our undercare in early life, we have to figure out how to mend them enough so that we can actually be flourish, thrive uh, in the present moment. <clears throat> so I talk about first uh, paying attention to when you get afraid or angry 
or nervous or anxious. And then learn to notice that, keep track, and then learn to calm down. Uh, and it helps to write it out in a journal. Uh, you know, there's some therapies where you talk it out and that's helpful. It depends on the person, you know, exactly what it is and um, how severe things are. But to learn then uh, self-calming techniques like belly breathing, uh, other things for vagus nerve. So the vagus nerve is the 10th cranial nerve that innervates all the major organs of the body. And when it's not, it, and it gets set properly from early care. So comforting care, keeping babies from getting too distressed, uh, lots of touching and rocking and um, breastfeeding, things like that. So that's all part of the evolved nest. Uh, and when it's well uh, established, then it, they, it it's, helps the brain, heart, lungs, gut function well and lets you be intimate with someone else. You feel safe being, you know, uh, close physically with someone. And it's also linked to having greater compassion. So there's it's sort of this all do it all kind of nerve. <laughs> and but there are ways to help it retune if you were um, under cared for. So if you have irritable bowel, or which is an indicator that the vagus nerve didn't get set properly, or other issues, can even brain seizures related to it, um, in uh, trouble with intimacy, lack of compassion, then there are ways that you can revamp that vagus nerve. And so you can hum, and hum as long as you can, because it's the out-breath that's tuning up the parasympathetic system, which is the vagus nerve. Uh, so playing a wind instrument and having to blow, blah, 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 that's good. Uh, other things are, I always recommend play with other, with young children, especially, you know, chase, tag, wrestling, things where you have to be in the present moment that's going to grow your right hemisphere. In early life, the right hemisphere is supposed to be growing more rapidly than the left. And it's, it's collecting all these social experiences, life experiences, and then later transfers them to the left hemisphere for um, analysis and generalizations. Uh, and so you need a lot of experiences here. And the face-to-face, -face, all the nest kind of experiences of playing and eye contact and touch and uh, responsive care of all kinds grows that well. If you didn't have that, your right hemisphere won't be as flexible and attuned to others, uh, but you can, as an adult, still grow it with these face-to-face -face activities. So the playing, dancing, the singing together with others will grow that right hemisphere. So that's stuff that's going to help you calm down because the right hemisphere um, schedule or, I'm sorry, is, governs self-regulation in different ways, self-control and um, empathy. Well, that's interesting. It's not just about creativity. It's, it, it, it helps with self-regulation. Right. And higher consciousness. And higher consciousness, uh, yeah. Yeah. So, um, so I would say first learn self-calming, pay attention to when you're not calm, and then learn techniques for that. And then make sure you develop social joy, so that connection. This has been hard with COVID. Uh, but to actually be face-to-face -face with someone else and enjoy it. And if you were in early life, spent a lot of time in cribs or with screens, you didn't build those capacities or those interests, those values really. Um, and so you have to do 
things to help yourself get back to that because it's those relational connections that keep you happy, that keep you healthy, that keep you connected and, and balanced. And what I did with my students is we would play folk song games. I used to be a music teacher and used folk song games for teaching. And that is things like uh, hunting, we will go, hunting, we will go, we'll catch a little fox and put him in a box and then we'll let him go. And then what you're doing is you're having to play, you're touching, you're looking, you're in the moment with the other and you're having fun. So that's going to actually grow that right hemisphere, grow your sense of connection. And I, the college students would learn these songs and games. And then we go play them with kindergartners, with uh, five, six-year-olds. And then the, the, the undergrads, uh, the college students would go, wow, because the little kids would go, ah, I'm going to play. You know, they're so excited and jumping around. And college students, wow, that's what playing is like. So it was really, <laughs> really fun. Uh, and then I also then the third. So these are um, helping revamp your triune brain, essentially, the the survival systems, then your social connection kind of systems, you uh, call it a paleomammalian system, and then the higher order um, aspects, the prefrontal cortex and the frontal lobes, your ability to think and abstract and the left brain stuff, more flavored with left brain, is uh, you want it to be in, uh, inclusive, communal, oriented, not uh, because what happens when your um, survival systems are are in charge easily, you're, you'll use your abstraction to try to control others, to try to manipulate others, or even just attach. So this is all based in attachment. We can talk about attachment too, but um, so what you want to do though for healing is to learn how to have that um, feeling of connection and use your abstract thinking, your your ability to think about possibilities outside the present moment. You want it to be communal. <clears throat> That's that interesting. So, so yeah. you, it yeah. has a, a different orientation and purpose, the left brain, because I've, I've kind of always had this prejudice. So the left brain is always like the thing you want to be wary of and it it's it's sort of cold and 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 really we want to focus on on developing our right bound capabilities but you're saying something different no no it's not like there's anything wrong or bad about the left brain it can, it's just how it gets employed and can we can we have it orient towards community right so the intellect which is mm. who represents the ego left brain thing um <laughs> orientation mindset uh, is considered dangerous by most wisdom traditions every i think every wisdom tradition in the world uh, because it can be detached so easily and start to think it's better than everything else and that its ideas are so cool and man, it must be true. And, you know, all the abstracting you in the ivory tower kind of thinking. Uh, and so it's dangerous, uh, but it need, it's necessary. We need that planful planning uh, foresight aspect of our brain. It just needs to be rooted in the communalism that I was talking about, not in the protectionism um, of me either controlling or withdrawing and just thinking about my own ideas. And isn't that fun and cool? Yeah. So you don't want it to become the kind of, there's a phrase in the book. I like that the um, predatory, predatory individualism, which has sort of, yeah, made some sense to me. And it's not yeah. a phrase I'd heard before, but yeah, you're using your left brain to kind of think through how me, 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 <laughs> can predate on you know 
the natural world or my community or whatever it might be. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So there's uh, there's a lot to fix, um, <laughs> but there's a lot of entry points depending on where people are. So if you're a parent, you know, to spend more, uh, learn about the Evolved Nest. EvolvedNest.org has tons of things, uh, essays and podcasts and videos, uh, and learn about that and try to employ every day, you know, to be paying attention to being very affectionate, to playing and uh, learning how to be playful in a way that lets the child be in charge, for example, uh, being responsive and not getting triggered yourself. Uh, with your own concerns, but being responsive to that child depends on the age of the child, how you respond and the nature connection. We have um, 28 days of nature connection, eco attachment dance for people to just do one thing every day for 28 days to try to get back into a sense of, of um, being attached to the earth. Uh, and so there's a lot of things there to do. And, and if you're a professional to uh, see how it is your uh, workplace provides the nest and what you can do because we need the nest throughout our lives. And we don't, the birthing and the breastfeeding, that's for early life, <laughs> but all the rest of it is for everybody. So welcoming climate, uh, playful interactions, um, responsive mentors, uh, nature connection, healing routine, healing practices. So our, in the San Bushman, <clears throat> They, of the Kalahari, they've been around for 150,000 years or so. Our genes, uh, we have, there are relatives, and they have routine healing practices. Several times a week, they'll have a grief dance or ceremony or trance and let go of things. And, and we've got tons of grief going on now, all of us. And so we need to have those routine ways of letting it go so that we can be clear hearted. So part of heart mindedness is to clear off resentments and grief and concerns or uh, imbalances. And so you can actually be in tune with your, your spiritual, whatever pathway that is, the unmanifest. I mean, I don't know. It's so hard to talk about because we're in a sciencey manifest oriented world, right? But there is something beyond that and we need to tap into it. And you can't, if you're all caught up in your fear and guilt and anger and, um, resentments, right? You have to let them go. So having routine practices for that, families can do this at home, you know, okay, we're going to all write down something we don't like and throw it in the, you know, wad up the paper and throw it in the fire or whatever it is, uh, or have a dance that's on and everyone can act like a wild animal, you know. I do that with my kids. I I dance (laughs) around the kitchen with my kids. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) All that yeah. kind of stuff. So there's things you can do at every level. We have to heal adults. So adults need to also have all these um, self-aware activities and being nested and then start to rethink about how we live together as a, as societies, as communities. Yeah, beautiful. I think that, that makes so much sense. Remember, you're, you're, when you mentioned the, the sand tribesmen, well, first of all, having a, some kind of grieving session several times a week. I mean, that's, Yeah. That makes total sense because we're constantly building up resentments and and stuff is bubbling up from our past and our childhood. So, and you know, my own experience in the self work I do in the therapy, I'm I'm doing that like several times a week. But the, to think that whole communities could engage in that together, how much more powerful would that be? That's that's uh, you know a wonderful idea. And I 
it also reminds me, I don't know if you come across the book, The Continuum Concept by Judith oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, she described in that when she, she was observing some, you know, some indigenous tribes down in South America, how the men in the tribes would just, just as a matter of course, if they got upset about it, just go cry openly in front of the rest of the tribe in the arms of their wife. Mm-hmm. Um, and it didn't appear to diminish their masculinity. It was just, you know, they got upset about it. They'd have a cry and they'd, they'd weep, you know, openly, you know, being held by their, by their wives. I mean, <laughs> you know, that might happen like if somebody dies, but it doesn't happen as a matter of course in our, in our culture. And just, it, you know, that really opened my eyes to, I suppose now in these terms, how open hearted communities can be. Um, yeah. And it's, I suppose that's uh, what you're talking about here, that it's possible. That's right. Yeah, it's so different. Um, so I, uh, my grad student, Mary Tarsha, and I wrote a chapter recently that should be, I should get the book any day, uh, called The Missing Mind. <laughs> and we talk about how well, e. e. Richard Sorensen, an uh, anthropologist, distinguished between what he called pre-conquest and post-conquest cultures or consciousness and the pre-conquest are all these hunter-gatherer societies he lived with around the world and filmed. And the post-conquest are the very left brain-oriented, the westernized, dominant worldview people. <clears throat> and when they come in contact, it's quite a shock <laughs> for both, right? In the, in the uh, journals and accounts of the Europeans coming to the Americas, the Europeans thought, you know, these people don't know how to do anything. They haven't done anything to the land, you know, so we can just take it because in those days they believed, and I think it's still in the books, if you don't do something with the land and approve it, you don't own it. It's not yours. And so they came in thinking that, well, they didn't do anything. We'll just take it. (laughs) We take all the land, right? But they had been doing stuff, just like in Australia, the Aborigines were tending, right? Keeping things from burning down by having little fires, right? instead of the big fires. Um, and so the Europeans come in, they think that the, they don't know what they're doing because they don't control their children. They let them run around, you know, this thing about coercing kids wasn't there. And then the natives are thinking, who are these Europeans? They seem to be soulless. They're not there. They're not emotionally present. They won't, they're just greedy. They can't get their mind off of stuff, you know, and grabbing and grabbing and grabbing. So there's something, um, you know, pre-conquest is about enjoyment and being with one another and, and loving life and, you know, enhancing the well-being of the people you're with, but also the natural world. You're not cutting things down and burning up a forest just for a fire like the reports were for the Europeans coming to America. But the, po- the post-conquest, it's all about control and wanting dominance and wanting, because of, I think, because of the primal wound, the deep emptiness and disconnection that then follows you throughout life unless you heal it. And then you, you don't know any better. You And everyone's yeah. male rivalry uh, and the big egos, all that's allowed to, you know, grow out of hand. And here we are. We've got a bunch of big egos killing us. <laughs> So let's get back to healing. <laughs> let's get singing. Yeah, <laughs> and dancing. And yeah, and the breath work. I mean, it's all there, right? I mean, it is all there. It's all there for us, isn't it? I mean, and I've availed myself of all kind of modalities and, and, and learned to connect with my heart. And, uh, and then it's conversations like this just show me there's, there's always more 
um, you know, and we can always open even further. So thank you. Good. All right. Well, we'll, we'll certainly put, put links to all of the resources you've, you've mentioned there. Um, and I guess, especially for parents, the evolved nest. Um, but as you say, we need this throughout life, right? We, we, it's not like we suddenly become self-sufficient. I guess that's another myth, isn't it? Um, yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. Any, any parting comments, anything to say? I think uh, it's important to keep ourselves in a state of of love, of confidence. We are here as part of the earth. We're not going anywhere. Uh, even when we die, we're part of the earth. The Hopi say that this is the fourth world, fourth or fifth world. I think it varies uh, that we're kind of messing up. <laughs> there'll be another one <laughs> we'll see if we get that one right <laughs> so to let go of me the i ego my identity to learn to let that go and just be part of the whole i think is really important for all of us now and have confidence that life goes on life continues and we'll be part of it no matter what yeah wonderful okay Dasha, thank you so much. Um, it's been a wonderful conversation. I uh, can't wait to, to get it out there. Thanks so much, Richard. Yeah. Thanks. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com. <laughs>